The Start On Demand. On demand. Coming soon in Canada, if you want to get on a plane or a train, you will need to be vaccinated. What's your take on that? We had a fascinating chat for our small town salute. This week, our salute was to the birds that we can see before winter hits, and we learned all kinds of cool stuff, courtesy of Oak Hammock Marsh. The Beer Can is hosting a special Thanksgiving dinner this weekend in support of a couple of great local organizations. We had a good chat with them. We spoke to a Winnipeg author and veterinarian who wrote a book called How to Examine a Wolverine. And I did something really boneheaded after work on Wednesday. You'll hear that story in just a moment. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, October 7th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And we want to start on on our schedule. We have it listed here that Brett is a stupid moron idiot. So I want to share a story of something that happened yesterday, and I, I and it involves one of our listeners. So this not is, just hang on, not just stupid, not just moron, but idiot. All three. Yes, you can throw okay. in dumb. You can throw in dumb in there as well. Wow. Stupid, dumb, moron, this is idiot. A harsh self criticism. <laughs> well. Listen, uh, listener Miles, Miles Shatsky, he has been uh, inviting me to golf with him. He's a member at Glendale, and he's been inviting me to golf with him for weeks now. And every time I have been unable, either I've already got plans or the timing doesn't work or whatever. So we finally pinned one down. Yesterday, the tee time was 1220. So I thought, that's Pretty tight, but I think I can make it work as long as I everything falls into place. I got to be out the door here by 1030. It's a 25-minute walk home, and then uh, that'll give me enough time to get my stuff together and be on the road before 1130 because Google Maps says it's a 25-minute ride. I've never been to Glendale. It's a private club. Can't go. I can't walk on there and play. You have to go with a member. Sure. So I get out of here at 1030, <laughs> and... um I'm crossing the Osborne Bridge. I'm fumbling in my pocket to grab my mask because I live in the Evergreen Towers right off the bridge. So I reach into my pocket to grab my mask, put my mask on, and I'm walking up to the door, reach for my keys, oh, no. and I realize <gasps> that they are sitting right here at my desk oh, at no. work. Why? Why would you have taken them? For what purpose are they out of your pocket? For comfort? Yeah. Yeah. Mine are also sitting on my desk. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to call Miles and say, Miles, I'm not going to make it because I got to walk back to work to get my keys. I thought about making up an excuse. Like, I, Miles, I'm sorry. I got to go back to work for to deal with something important. But I just realized that I, I'm a terrible liar. So I just said, I, this is embarrassing, man. I uh... <laughs> At this point, does Miles think maybe you're just avoiding him altogether? <laughs> I think so. I don't, because when I talked to him, he even, he even kindly offered to come pick me up. He said, look, I don't live far from downtown. I can come meet you at work and get you back to your place so we can get your stuff. And I just, I couldn't, I didn't want to put him out. And it was, it would have been so rushed anyway. So I just said, I'm, I, I've just, I'm sorry, man. I'm not going to make it. Oh, that Aww, is too bad too on bad. so many fronts. Yeah. We need to get you a satchel, a merce, 
some sort of thing to carry your European carry all. Yes. The dumb thing is, I have a backpack. I have oh, a ba- like I buddy, gotta- <laughs> put the keys in the backpack. Why are they out on the desk, you two? I don't know. Well, I can't go anywhere because I uh, I drive here every day. So, uh, although I did the same thing Friday, I left I left work without my keys last Friday. Joined you for some lunch at the King's Head. And I had to come all the way back up here because I didn't have my keys on me. And I just left them on some random desk. I was speaking with Clay Young, and I just left my keys on uh, one of the random unused desks. Fortunately, Kyle Milroy found them. Otherwise, I would have been looking here, there, and everywhere for my keys. You know, for all the times I've been mocked for the things I forget, you too. You too. Where's Kelly Moore now to hear this and blame you too for your forgetfulness? Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Wow, he mocked me for the first two years, first two years of my time with you guys for my forgetfulness. And now I hear this and I think, hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No one ever said Loren was it was exclusive. Forgetting mm-hmm. things was exclusive mm-hmm. to Loren. You should see my purse lips right now. They're just very, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, Miles, if you're listening, I hope you're listening. I'm sorry. I told him I would fall on the sword just after the six o'clock news. So there it is. I'm I'm a stupid moron idiot. Well, your your apologies is better than Trudeau's was yesterday for missing National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Oh yeah. Yours sounds sincere. You had a real reason. You made an actual mistake. You didn't plan to leave your keys on the desk and consult with your security about your trip home and take hours to plan it and then say, oh, I shouldn't have, oh, shouldn't have got, shouldn't have done that. You know, you're, you're an individual. You're only one person. Prime Minister Trudeau has how many advisors, how many right. people in his inner circle? Security detail, right, could have a pilot, um, people on the plane could have been like, so you got five hours flight here to think about this. You still yeah. want to keep going west? Yes. <laughs> they should have kept going west, but just made just a tiny little turn at Calgary. Just all they had to do was turn about maybe about 10 degrees at Calgary, and they would have ended up exactly where they should have been, and that would have been in Kamloops. You know, I always say you will uh, every once in a while criticize a message that ends up being played either in the media or a commercial, and you know, look at it and go, well, that's terrible. There's not one person involved in making that decision and getting and allowing that commercial or that political message or whatever it might be onto the air. It has to go through multiple layers of of scrutiny and of brainstorming. Mm -hmm. And so Justin Trudeau didn't come to this decision all on his own. And he's certainly not by himself in terms of making the decision and having people around him that could go, do you really think this is the best idea? Yeah. You yeah. had a wife, first of all, you turn to and say, we should go on vacation for a couple of days. Start Shouldn't packing. Should be somewhere talk else to your, Talk to your aides and your communications people. We're going to take a couple <laughs> days off. All right, I'll put that. No, I won't put that in the itinerary. I'll just put that you're here in Ottawa. Okay, can we get the plane organized? All right, now we got to talk to the plane. we got to talk to the airport. we got to plan our route. Let's get RCMP involved. Let's get some security detail. Let's keep going west. Yeah, I think we all know where this is going. I mean, listen, he said sorry. If that means something to the people that it that this hurt the most, which is the people who are gathering on Truth and Reconciliation Day, if that apology means something, that's great. If it doesn't, let us know as well. I mean, I just I I don't know how many times you get to say I'm sorry for people's sake before people stop listening. Yeah, like he, the, the man's entitled to vacation, but this sure. he bobbled. 
as a uh, basketball commentator, Bill Walton. Was that his name, Bill Walton? Bill Walton. Yeah, he once I once was watching a game and he said he just, he just bobbled the ball, <laughs> and uh, that's what Trudeau did here. He bobbled the ball. There's something no fierce. Yeah, but, uh, look, there's lots of ways to dissect this, but th- that's just not smart. How did you describe yourself here? Brett is a stupid moron idiot. I would never call anybody else that, uh, but it's applicable to others other than you. How's that, Brett? Oh, and uh, to top it off, I slept in this morning because my because I had alarm clock problems. I need to get in. That's it. Yeah, I'm getting you that uh, that alarm clock. You need to get Loren that picture of that Sanyo clock radio. One of our listeners sent yesterday, Paula. Paula. if you're ever thinking about getting rid of that thing, send it here to CJOB. I'm sure Brett could make really good use of it. Yeah. What about a siren? I might need a siren. I might need a siren. Or, I don't think or his neighbors would like that. Yeah. Well, that they some there have been Ooh. there have been the occasional times where I could hear them pounding on the wall because I won't wake up. I, there's a flying alarm clock. Like, what if you go to hit snooze and it just takes off in the air? It drone flies. Style? It says it's flying. It also says it's only $18, so I highly doubt this works. Oh, wow. I got to give that a shot. That sounds fun. (laughs) Is it in the shape of a pig? It looks like a helicopter. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there it is. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb are going to talk travel and the vaccine in a moment. But before that, what's this... uh, Greg, I see you've put something in our script here as uh-huh. it pertains to my uh, being a stupid moron idiot. Loren, I think you found the answer. For Let's those play. of you wondering what it would take to wake the slumbering gorilla in your garage, we figured it out. <laughs> Seven flying alarm clocks sounding simultaneously will wake your gorilla, but he may be a little cranky. <laughs> I don't know if we need seven, but uh, one might work. Oh, see, I feel like this is the way to go. It flies around the room. You can't catch it to snooze it. It's also sounding like it's going to kill you Yes, while you chase it, which is effective. I feel like this is the Christmas gift we've been waiting to send. I love it. I love it. It's, 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 that actually seems like a fun way to wake up. All right. To wake up to a game every morning. You're going to curse our name every day. <laughs> Damn you, man. <laughs> okay. Well, if this is a real thing, I look forward to trying it out. In our next segment, by the way, we'll give you details on how you can win bomber tickets for tomorrow. It's tomorrow night. Wow. Tomorrow's game. All right. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's Thursday. Woo. All right. Traveling by plane or rail in Canada is about to require another document, proof you have been vaccinated against COVID-19. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made the announcement yesterday, keeping a promise he made before the election. As we've been telling you this morning, federally regulated workers will also have to be vaccinated or they could be forced into an unpaid leave situation. Global's Sean O'Shea reports. Taking the train between cities and towns means buying a ticket and wearing a mask, but soon it will also require proof of COVID-19 vaccination. By the end of October, everyone 12 or older on a plane or train within Canada should be fully vaccinated. At Union Station in Toronto, these VIA passengers say they welcome the move. If I have to get vaccinated just to go on a train, then you know, just give it to me, I'll, I'll take it. We live extraordinary times, and for this, You need extraordinary measure. The Prime Minister promised that medical exemptions to the new rules will be onerous to obtain. Rules that apply to federally regulated industries like air and rail travel. 
but not commuter trains like Go Transit, which is provincially regulated. Their staff must be vaccinated and they encourage the same for passengers, but enforcement wouldn't be possible. In this building here at Union Station, there are over a hundred access points that you can get to and from your train or your bus and uh, as well as, so it's, it's, it's a bit in, impractical. The government is mandating all federal employees to be vaccinated by next month too. The RCMP, Correctional Services of Canada, the Canada Border Services Agency, and many other offices and agencies. Employees are first expected to declare their status, then managers will be expected to verify that employees are telling the truth or face discipline. But it's the travel requirements that Canadians will have to contend with soon. There will be a short period where people who are in the process of getting vaccinated can show a negative COVID-19 test. But by the end of November, if you're 12 or older and want to fly or take the train, you'll have to be fully vaccinated, as will staff. So this story is actually making headlines around the world, particularly in the States where they're looking at different measures there. It's on CNN and USA Today and all the rest because Trudeau is selling this as one of the strongest mandates in the world. It, it raises a lot of questions about in terms of that grace period they're going to allow for, in terms of when you actually have to have this all completed by. There's lots of people who will have vacation or even work or whatnot booked and may or may not be vaccinated. So they're going to have to look to do that, I think, in a real hurry, depending on how this goes and what that grace period is. But basically by November, end of November, this is going to be the rule. And I'm, I'm curious a, if this gets challenged at all in courts, we know there are different challenges taking place, constitutional challenges. And then will this be the thing that convinces you? You know, we've heard from different people over the last few days, people who have not wanted to be vaccinated about what finally was the thing that said, fine, fine, I, fine, I'll do it. You know, was it your kid in sports and you not being able to access the rink? Was it, is it this travel requirement? Is it what your workplace is doing? I, I've been, <laughs> I've been on a plane twice now this year and I'm shocked that no proof of vaccination was required on the plane when it has been required in so many other places. So for me personally, this has taken too long to put into action just based on how I can't go to a restaurant and not have to show my vaccine card, but I can sit on a plane for four hours with someone. So to me, this makes sense given all the other things we're doing. What do you guys think? Well, I agree with you. I'm surprised that it's taken this long, especially uh, when you compare it to sitting down for a meal in a restaurant, uh, even though you could argue the face-to-face -face in a restaurant versus the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder in an aircraft is different, but certainly the time periods most often are more extensive, I would expect, when you're on an aircraft. And uh, I'm seeing stuff uh, that maybe the uh, different airlines uh, might be how they hand out the meals, if there is in fact a meal service, uh, they're going to be sort of staggering them. Uh, maybe the, the people on the outside will get their meals first and then the people in the middle or vice versa so that not all three people in a row have their masks removed at the same time. So if they're thinking about things like that, this is clearly a concern, Brett. Yeah, like how many times have you gone on vacation and come back sick because you caught a cold or something on the plane? Like Almost I, every time. Yeah, like we have had colleagues in the past who, like like clockwork, you knew that when they went on vacation they were going to come back sick. Uh, so you're, I'm with you as well, Loren. I'm surprised it took this long, and uh, I support that. And we've made this our question of the day at cjob.com for Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. 
Call Mr. Furness, 204-832-6243. Vaccine proof will soon be required to get on a plane or a train in Canada. What do you think? Your options are no problem, already vaccinated. Guess I'll have to get vaxxed now, or this is going too far. And we'll put it on Twitter as well, at 680CJOB. And, um, you know, it's it's concerning as well, especially when you look at what, what's happening in other parts of the country, like oh. Saskatchewan. They had a record, for fourth day in a row, they had a record-breaking number of people in the hospital, 356 people in care. Uh, a week ago, that number, Loren, was 295. Think about this. So I traveled to Montreal, for example, last month. I get on a plane, I don't have to show proof of vaccine. I get into the cab, I didn't have to show proof of vaccine. I walked to get a coffee at Starbucks that night. I had to, couldn't sit in there without showing proof of vaccine. I was spending 10 minutes in there versus the time I spent on that plane and the 30 minutes in the cab. Like, this is, this is where you have to rationalize what makes the most sense. And so this makes sense to me. Now, the question is, of course, you just brought up travel to other parts of the country. Lots of people still do that by car. You know, there's lots of other ways to get around. I get that. But bottom line, you now can't, unless you're able to cross into the States without proof of a vaccine to get on a flight, you are now not able to go anywhere outside of this country either without a proof of vaccine as it stands right now. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we have bomber tickets up for grabs for tomorrow night's game against Edmonton. Based on your text messages and what we are about to discuss. Greg, how about you set this up? Well, yesterday our community lost a genuine giver. His name was Kai Madsen. You know this name. He was synonymous with the Christmas cheer board. He passed away uh, just a few months after retiring from his position as executive director. So condolences to to Kai Madsen's family and everyone who cared and, and knew about Mr. Madsen. Uh, the work he did in our community was immeasurable. And so we were putting our heads together trying to figure out what we should talk about today. And I said, you know, I think we should pay tribute to Mr. Madsen and his contributions to the community. And this was sort of reinforced. I was scrolling through Twitter. Surprise, surprise, Brett. And from the Twitter handle, Richard Allen WI2, it's from Richard Allen Wilson here in Winnipeg. He follows me. He, I follow him. He posted two quotes to inspire us this morning, but I'm going to draw on the second one of the two that he posted, and it's from Winston Churchill. I think it ties in nicely. You make a living by what you get. You make a life by what you give. And Kai Madsen gave a ton to this community, so we want to talk about the community leaders, the teachers, coaches, others who've inspired you in your lifetime. So let's go around the horn here. Jeff Braun, how about we start with you, sir? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and uh, some teachers, I think, that don't get nearly enough credit as they should are the driver's ed teachers that are out there. And I've been helping uh, teach a teenager how to drive over the past year, my girlfriend's daughter. And every time I hand her the keys and I get in the passenger seat, I think to myself, <laughs> okay, Mr. Friesen was so calm when he taught us how to drive in Altona in 1992. And so just stay calm, stay calm. Now, I mean, he had the benefit of having that extra brake on his side of the car, which I don't have in my car. But uh, I've been, you know, uh, it's it's been okay. I've been relatively calm, and uh, she's actually turning into a really good driver. So it's been paying off, and we've only uh, been airborne in my car once in the last year. <laughs> what do you mean airborne? All four tires left the ground. There was a... Uh, a curb and then a parking lot, and we didn't notice that there was like a six-foot drop between the two, <gasps> so it was 
too late, and we were flying over it like Thelma and Louise. Oh, my God. <laughs> like Thelma and Louise. <laughs> well, did the car sustain any damage? No, it was fine. It was, it was, we weren't going terribly fast, but it was, it was like, oh, that's a, that was a moment. <laughs> wow. That's, that's scary. Yeah. Uh, yesterday was World Teachers Day, by the way, so a big salute to all the teachers out there. Loren, what about you? Well, I think, you know, what you, what you realize, and I didn't notice this as a kid, and I see it so much more now, is how many things in our world operate strictly because of volunteers, right? Like if mm. you didn't have people putting in 10, 15, 20, 30 hours, first of all, so many of these charities have some paid positions, but we know the paid positions are in that lower end of the spectrum. And then there's the volunteers who make them happen. And so I think this morning of, you know, my kid had a track meet a couple of weeks ago and parents had to go out and volunteer, but the teachers there were putting all the extra hours to set up the cross country race. And then the coaches for hockey are putting hours upon hours in of their own time uh, the organization of all these things doesn't happen without some mom or dad or aunt or uncle putting up their hand and saying sure i'll step up and then and then the hours that are involved it, it sometimes can become a full-time job and out of kai madsen last year i know he does all this he did all this great work with the christmas cheer board to get hampers to people and last Christmas on a Facebook page, I noticed this woman in a community group who said, hey, I'm trying to also get some hampers out to other people who are on a list that just that couldn't be fulfilled. And there she was. And we, I, I Facebooked her and said, I'll help show up at this woman's home in her own home. Her living room is now filled with turkeys and boxes and macaroni and different things that she was trying to organize additional hampers to get out to people. And out of something like the cheer board, she's inspired to also go on and do her own thing in her own community with her own time. And she was exhausted <laughs> trying to make this work. But man, you should have seen the happy looks on people's faces at the end of the day. So I just think all that free time that we think we don't have, maybe, maybe we do, and we can give back more. So to anyone who's put up their hand in any group, in parent advisory committee, your PAC council, your sport kids, sport team, and said, sure, I'll put in the hours, man, kudos to you, because I know that has turned into a part-time, if not full-time job for thousands of you. Right on. Wow. That's very well said and a compelling, compelling uh, argument to, to step up and, and volunteer your time. Um, thank you for that, Loren. Uh, Forte, oh, and by the way, I said Teacher's Day was yesterday. It was Tuesday. Just wanted to throw that out. Forte, what, what, what about you? Well, I'm going to go with the teacher as well, my high school band teacher from River East, uh, Mr. Jeff Kula. He was awesome. Any student that's ever had him, you know, talks about him so highly. He's uh, He was just, he was an amazing, uh, amazing teacher. And uh, for me, I remember I didn't want to, be in band in grade 11 and 12 just because I didn't really fit in and uh, you know he sat me off to the side and said you know like you have to have to join band I know you love music and he convinced me so wow. I ended up taking band in grade 11 and 12 as well and uh, one thing I do regret though is he told me uh, he wanted me to join the jazz band and I said I can't I have to work I you know he, he told me you have your whole life to work right now do what you want to do I end up working because I, I wanted a car but uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's, he was an awesome teacher, so a and, shout and out you to still him. play drums to this day, right, well, Jeff? Like the gift, no, or I, you have? I, you I live in an apartment now. My, my neighbors <laughs> would literally kill me if I played drums. But uh, you should move next door to Brett, and then you could wake him up with, with <laughs> hey, drums. That's practice. true. <laughs> yeah, you, well, our neighbors would be unhappy with you as well, there, Fortier. But that would be uh, that'd be a great alarm. Waking up to Fortier playing some jazz drums. 
<laughs> Mackling, what about you? Well, uh, you know, David Northcott, uh, the former head of Winnipeg Harvest, Manitoba Harvest now, always used to talk about working to put himself out of a job. And that's always the lens I've sort of seen these community leaders, those that work with these formal organizations, as as doing to a great extent. And that's And that's selfless in itself. And to have that type of goal I think is wonderful but this morning I wanted to uh, talk about Ken Hunter. Ken was my very first football coach um, in our Bantam days back with the St. James Rods and and Ken managed to take a game that I love to play with my friends and uh, my brother and my dad and a passion as a fan and he turned it into a passion sport for me. I didn't know that I, if I would ever be able to play football and Ken uh, taught me the game, the intricacies of the game. And we also had fun as a team. We managed to win the provincial championship in 1984. And that group of guys, those of us that are still around, uh, count one another as friends to this day, all these years later. But Ken always made it fun. Like uh, we had one uh, game where you had to wear crazy socks. They didn't have to match the uniform. One game. And then on Halloween, we played a game Halloween weekend, and so our captains all wore these crazy Halloween masks to go and meet the other team for the coin toss. And if you could have seen the looks on the faces of those other guys as we walked up with these Frankenstein masks and these zombie masks, they thought we were crazy, which we sort of was. Our very first play of the season was a trick play. So a shout-out to Ken Hunter, a long, long long-time football coach in Winnipeg. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we're asking you at 204-780-6868 to tell us about a community leader, a teacher, a coach, someone in your life who inspired you. And uh, Greg, great text here from Judy. Yes, Judy says, I had the gift and honor of working many years with David Northcott at Winnipeg Harvest, now Manitoba Harvest. I will remember a conversation he had with Peter Warren on CJOB a long time ago where Peter Warren asked David Northcott if people, if he thought people were tired of hearing about the poor and hungry. And David responded that he felt the poor and hungry were tired of being poor and hungry. That statement had a huge impact on me. And like I said, made me just want to help people even more. Of course, I no longer work at Winnipeg Harvest, but did for a great many years. Thank you, Judy. Right on, Judy. Thanks for that. And keep those stories coming for a chance to win bomber tickets for tomorrow night's game. We'll give those away just after 9.15. In the meantime, for the second time in as many years, students at the University of Manitoba are watching and waiting to see whether faculty there will strike. Yeah, Brett, a strike was averted there last year. There was, of course, that strike in 2016. And now this year, contract talks have once again broken down. And so next weekend, October 16th, the union representing professors and library staff will vote on whether or not they should strike and hit the picket lines, Greg. Orvi Dingwall is the president of the University of Manitoba Faculty Association. Good morning, Orvi. Good morning. Thanks for taking some time today. What's that issue here? Is this all about dollars and cents? Uh, well, the real issue here is is top quality education at the University of Manitoba. And our members are so committed to providing that for students 
And the barrier right now is is salary. You just mentioned, you know, we were on strike in 2016. That's because the Pallister government illegally interfered in our bargaining by introducing the Public Service Sustainability Act um, before uh, he imposed it on on our members before it was um, uh, passed at the legislature. And we're still we ha- since then we haven't been able to freely and fairly bargain uh, on wages. I appreciate the challenge to, to freely bargain there, Orby. But you know, you also talk about the idea of quality education, and this has been a challenging year on the education front. Challenging two years, really, for everyone from K to twelve and into post secondary. Lots of kids still at home, students at home learning remotely. So, uh, what what do you say to students who have had to deal with the strike threat last year and again this year, and are looking for that quality education as well? Because this ultimately, at the end of the day, falls on them potentially not getting the education that they want either. Absolutely. And like I say, providing that education, our members are so dedicated um, to being there for students. And, uh, and we, we want to keep them in the classrooms um, and in their lecture, uh, lectures and labs and libraries. Um, but we can't do that if we can't recruit and retain the, um, the top talent that we have at our institution. So our salaries are falling so far behind that we're, see, we're, we're losing top candidates who are potentially interested in coming here to the University of Manitoba. And some of our um, great professors, instructors, and librarians are leaving for other institutions where they're paid more. And so uh, we're asking for a reasonable wage so we can keep um, those amazing uh, instructors and professors here at the University of Manitoba and continue to attract um, continued great ones so that uh, the students here in Manitoba absolutely have access, continued access to um, the best and the brightest uh, that we can offer. Now, faculty do vote to strike. If they vote yes, how soon would you then be on the picket line? Uh, if that's a little bit still of a moving um, of a moving date, uh, because we our bargaining team is still meeting with administration at the bargaining table, and they will continue to to meet um, every time the administration is available, and certainly if administration comes with with a reasonable salary offer. So um, the strike vote takes place October 16th to 18th. And then a normal part of the process is to allow um, a bit of time, a bit more time for bargaining. And um, hopefully with with that, that will bring administration to the bargaining table with um, with a reasonable salary offer. And uh, so usually two weeks after a strike deadline. But like I say, that's that's still a, a moving date. Orvi, I have to ask you this before we let you run here. How is it that other institutions are finding you, the, the money to, to pay professors and faculty if, if in fact, uh, people are leaving Manitoba for, quote-unquote, greenier pastures on that front? Uh, how is it that other institutions are, are finding the money to do this? Thank you so much for asking that. What we see at other institutions is that the administration values the instructors, professors, and librarians that are employed there, and they recognize that they are the absolute key to providing top-quality education to students. 
We saw um, the University of Manitoba reported uh, that last year it had a $90 million surplus. That is plenty of money to reinvest in the university and to, um, and to make a reasonable salary offer to UMFA's members, um, especially in light uh, of the fact that tuition um, continues to increase for students uh, and the university profits $90 million um, and our wages have been frozen for five years. Um, there's, there's some real uh, priority questions as to where administration is choosing to funnel that money. Orvi Dingwall is the president of the University of Manitoba Faculty Association. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Orvi. We appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we're asking you to tell us about a community leader, teacher, coach, somebody who inspired you and had an impact on your life. For a chance to win bomber tickets, we've got bomber tickets to give away. So tell us a story like this one. This listener says, My high school drama teacher, Mr. Oman, made the greatest impact on my life. I was very shy. I had low self-esteem going into grade 10. I took his class, and thank goodness for that. I was so scared sometimes that I would cry and not want to partake in his drama exercises, but he was so encouraging and patient with me, he made me feel comfortable with myself, and honestly, if not for him, I would not be the person I am today. This was in the late 70s, and I am still grateful for his kindness. Wow, that's that's an impact for a long, long time, Loren. Oh, is Loren turned off her microphone? Yeah, I think she That's has. a unique gift that many people have. No, it was on. Um, just was thinking about this because the, there's a gift that teachers have that allow them to see something that maybe others don't, right? To, to pick up on what a student might be feeling and then say to them, no, you can do this and you should do this. And, and hopefully they realize that those little words, those little pushes are so meaningful to someone all these years later. That person is, this is in the late 70s, right? I mean, 40 years later, 50 years later, they're still saying thank you. Don, meanwhile, says uh, all through school, teachers told me I'd never earn a living looking out the window with over 2 million miles behind me. I guess I won that argument. a boy, Don. <laughs> what about you, Brett? You didn't share your uh, your person of inspiration. Oh, we just didn't have time. But uh, for me, it would be um, a man named Rick Baverstock. He was, uh, he's, he's passed on now. Um, Sadly, but uh, he was the station manager at uh, the college radio station at Red River. That was 92.9 Kick FM. It was actually on the dial. It was an instructional radio station, and he was the manager there. Uh, so even though he wasn't one of my instructors at the college, and we had so many great instructors at Red River, but uh, I probably spent the most time with him because I, uh, that, that, that station was the reason I went to Red River because I knew they were getting a station and I'd get practical experience. And... Uh, Without him, I have no idea where I'd be, what I'd be doing, because he changed the course of my life. He got me on the road to, towards radio, and here I am. And now I get to, to laugh and have fun with you guys. So thank you very much, uh, Rick. I miss you. To Rick. Cheers to Rick. Time for the small town salute and... <laughs> Geese. Geese. They are everywhere these days. On the golf course, it was at St. Boniface a couple of days ago. They are everywhere, and they leave their poop 
everywhere. They're disgusting. They're, I love animals, but geese, they're, they're vermin. And they're at the yep. park. They're sitting beside every river. They hiss at you when, you're walk, when I'm walking through the legislature grounds. They're you know, right beside the sidewalk just hissing at me as I'm trying to walk by. Get out of my way. They're everywhere, Loren. You know, that took a turn. I was about to talk about how I love the sound of the geese this time of year and how it sort of inspires me. It's uh, such a fall feeling, and you can watch them sort of circle above, getting ready to make that arduous trip south and the sort of the symbolism behind the changing of the seasons. And I was all thinking poetic about it, but sure, we can have a r- wide range of opinions on geese. I, uh, I, in, I live south of Winnipeg and of course I go over the bridge into St. Adolph often and there's so many bird watchers who come there. I, I should pull over one day. I don't know what they're looking for, but in the spring and fall, they're always there and there's always Beyond the geese, there's so many uh, birds that are getting ready to do what they need to do this time of year, whether that will be leaving or preparing for the winter. And so, Greg, that's where we want to take this conversation. Today. Yes, of course. And this time of year, the geese are, are already or getting ready to head south. We'll find out from our expert. And although there might be some confusion these days with these warm temperatures, after 8, we're going to talk to a retired Environment Canada meteorologist, Rob Zobbs, to see if there's any more warm weather in the Forecast. In the meantime, there's no need for migratory birds to get out of here anytime soon. What should we be watching for? Where can we go to learn more? Easy answer. Oak Hammock Marsh, Jacques Bourgeois joins us. Good morning, Jacques. Good morning. So two quick questions. The first one real quick here. I uh, was surprised to hear geese honking uh, this morning. They were clearly flying at 3.30 a.m. Geese fly in the dark? They do, actually. Uh, a lot of geese, a lot of birds would prefer to fly at night. For one thing, there's no predators around, so there's no hawks or eagles hunting them down, because those guys, they rely on the uh, warm uh, current, the warm thermals to soar all the way south. And that's what people were doing at St. Adolphe, probably. They were looking for the uh, hawk migration, because it's a great place. They all sort of uh, followed the Red River Valley all the way south uh, in the fall and all the way back uh, north in the spring. Okay. Now, it seems like there's a bit of a love-hate relationship with the geese, uh, from what I've just uh, heard the, the banter earlier. And it's actually, uh, it, it's true for most people. But on one hand, I mean, geese are very, very good parents. They will actually defend their nest, defend the territory. And that's why they're hissing at you. They're just letting you know that, hey, I got some young nearby, leave me alone. And also for the golf course, well, why do you think the greens are so green? It's actually thanks to the geese again. So there's actually, uh, that's the benefits to having those geese around. And to me, I kind of see the geese as the the bisons of the sky. You know, you have to respect them. They're big, they're massive, they're herbivorous, they're harmless, but they are imposing. So you have to give them some respect. It, this is where I want to yell out in your eye, Brett McGarry. That was a passionate plea for the then love say of the it. geese. Yell it, Loren. <laughs> I'm emphatic. In your eye. Let me just counter for a second. Okay, yeah, they're good parents and they defend their nest, but they're all, they're morons. Why? Like the, they build their nest on the median and then they got to cross the streets when the when they hatch. Like what? So that's not a good parent to me. Ah. I don't like True enough, and that would be, I guess, uh, you know, uh, survival of the fittest in a way. So if you don't build your nest in the right place, well, you'll learn for next year, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jacques, you mentioned the falcon. I think you said falcons, right? That might be what the bird watchers are looking for in St. Adolphe? Yeah, any kind of bird of prey, mostly uh, hawks, uh, eagles, falcons. Yeah, because they, they tend to fly uh, during the day only, so it's a good time to go and spot them when they're flying over the Red River Valley. So I, I had a question then. So the geese are getting ready to go south. This might sound ignorant. What do all birds do in winter? Like some stick around. They don't all flee, right? So which ones stay? Which ones go? Which ones sort of do a winter slowdown? 
Well, basically, what happens is uh, what drives the birds south is not so much the cold. A lot of people think, oh, it gets so cold, the birds have to go. Birds are very well, well equipped to uh, survive cold temperatures. They have all this nice thick duvet and feathers that keep them warm. They have something called countercurrent heat exchange, which means that the warm blood leaving the heart will actually warm up the cold blood coming back from the extremities. So basically, they have a gradient of temperature. And that's why they can walk bare feet on ice. It, it doesn't really matter to them. But what drives them south is a lack of food. If they cannot find their food, they have to go south. So the majority of our birds who eat, uh, for example, on aquatic plants, insects, and so on, they have to go where there's open water or where there's flying insects. So that means, for example, our geese or waterfowl or ducks, they have to go south. And south doesn't mean it's that far south. For example, the geese nesting in the interlake, they just basically cross the border to Minnesota. So they found a little place where there's an open lake, uh, thanks to a power station that, that, that keeps it warm, and they spend the whole winter there. Uh, whereas they, some of the snow geese nesting up in the Arctic, they will migrate all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Some small ducks and some small warblers, they will make their way all the way to South America. So it all depends on the species and if they can find the food they're looking for. Well, here I thought they had this calendar in their head <laughs> or they were reading the angle of the sun. Uh, back to that more sciencing, uh, Loren. Or just the temperature. But it, it's, uh, it, it's based on availability of food that has them hustling south or not. Yeah, but you're, you're actually right as well with the, uh, the, 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 the amount of uh, daylight is what triggers this migrationary uh, restlessness. They get excited. It's hormonal. So they, they feel when the days are getting shorter, they feel they, they have to eat more, they have to get ready for some big trip. And then as a matter of fact, as you mentioned, they would use different uh, techniques to navigate. For example, um, just like yourself, they would use a roadmap to go south. So, for example, if they live on the uh, west coast, they can follow the coastline. Birds on the east coast, the coastline over to Florida. But the birds living in the prairies here, well, there's not too many mountains, there's not too many coastlines to follow, so they follow waterways, lakes, and rivers. So we are right smack dab in the middle of the Mississippi Flyway. So the uh, Lake Winnipeg, uh, Red River uh, Valley, and the Mississippi will actually eventually lead to the Gulf of Mexico. So we drain, we have a really, really big flyway here, and we train a huge amount of birds all the way south here. And that's why it's so exciting to see the migration at Okamak Marsh, for example, because you see such a good variety of birds every time. It's just amazing. So Okamak Marsh, for those that don't know where it is, where is it? Well, it's right about a half hour north of uh, the city, uh, between highway number 8 and highway number 7. And right now, it's just so alive with birds. It's just incredible. There's geese everywhere. Mind you, there's, um, I think the population is a bit down from the past years because it's been mm. such a hot summer, and I think a few nests didn't make it, unfortunately. But there's still quite a few. I would probably estimate or guesstimate about 100,000 geese right now at Okamak. Wow. That's got to get oh noisy. It sure does, yeah. It's, it's, it's phenomenal, especially at night from the rooftop, and it's going to be a beautiful evening tonight. So you basically stand there, and we have an interpreter that tells you all about the geese, where they go, where they're coming from, and so on. And then you can watch all those clouds it's almost like a thunderstorm rolling in and basically invading the sky from every direction and they get so loud and so amazing i just it's electrifying i just love this time of year well i think we should do a road trip brett we should all go we could play some music maybe get some poutine and pizza to watch these geese to romance it up a bit for you and you would fall in love with them <laughs> Bring your golf clubs. <laughs> yeah <laughs> listen I, I i jokes aside about about hating the geese i do i do find them fascinating like for example jacques uh when we used to work at polo park uh every year 
in the spring, there would be this, these, I'm guessing they were the same two geese who would come back and they were like sentinels. They were, they'd be on the rooftops of the bay. They'd be in the parking lot. They, the, the same geese would come back every year and roam the parking lots and eventually they'd build a nest. Um, and that, like, so what is it with geese going back to the same spot every year? Well, you're right, actually. Geese are among the few birds that will remain together for their whole life, and they will be the same ones coming over and over. And if, if it's a good, successful location, they will come back to it. If it's, uh, let's say, by McGilvery and all, all the babies got hit by cars, then they probably won't go back there. So if it's a good spl- uh, spot by Polo Park, for example, and, and they were successful, the young hatch, and they had a good success rate, they will definitely go back year after year. Sure. But, you know, migration is actually pretty, uh, pretty scary and pretty tough for lots of birds. About... Um, only 30% of birds will actually survive their first migration. And so in a way, it makes you wonder, well, why, why migrate in the first place? Why, why not? You know, when you, when you make it south, when you survive all those uh, dangers, could be predation, um, could be uh, habitat uh, loss, could be uh, different things, collisions, for example. Now, why not stay down to Florida? Why come all the way back here to Manitoba? Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually because of the habitat, right? They came back here, they had lots of place, lots of good habitat, lots of good place to build their nest, and they were successful. So, for example, birds that stay down south, they may have one or two chick a year. But uh, if you come back here, uh, if you migrate all the way back here, you can have like 10, 15 chicks a year. So you can increase your offspring load. You can have a lot more young. And even if you have, like, let's say, 7 out of 10 that don't make it, it's still three that will survive, which is more than one or two that will survive in the south. So it's a, it's a survival strategy, more or less. Jacques Bourgeois, Oak Hammock Marsh, thank you very much for joining us. And this was very, yeah. as Greg put it, science We learned a lot of cool stuff here. So thanks for talking to us today. Well, thanks for having me. Pretty safe to say this has been one of the nicest falls we've seen in Manitoba in years. Yeah, temperatures have been in the high 20s, low 30s all week, and we really couldn't ask for more. But, and yes, there is always a but, we know that it has to end soon. Rob Paula is a retired meteorologist with Environment Canada. Great follow on Twitter. It's called Rob's Obs. Robert, good morning, sir. Good morning. So, uh, feels like a fall like no other. Uh, feelings and uh, hyperbole are one thing. Did we break any records officially this week? Uh, we haven't in our official highs. Uh, we have been uh, unseasonably warm, uh, but there have been just a few days uh, in previous years that have just edged out our highs uh, just a little bit warmer. But it has been unseasonably warm to uh, as a start to this October. So I'm curious, Rob, you know, when we look at what we've been going through and how it's been so wonderful the past five, six weeks and into fall, does this warm weather bode well for decent weather in the winter? Can we connect the two or it's just completely unrelated? Yeah, no, there's no relation. Um, <clears throat> we've seen uh, similar warm uh, beginnings to October and uh, some winters preceding those uh, early October heat waves have resulted in a very cold uh, winter. Some were very mild, some were average. So you don't really see a correlation with any um, warm weather in October uh, to the following winter. Now, what are we expecting this weekend in terms of rain? 
Well, uh, as you mentioned, and all good things come to an end. We have a, we've had a glorious start to the week, but unfortunately, uh, for Thanksgiving weekend plans, uh, things uh, will be getting cooler and wetter. Uh, we have a frontal system coming through tomorrow on Friday, which could trigger some showers and even some scattered thunderstorms. And then on the weekend, a more significant system coming up from the Dakotas will likely spread an area of uh, widespread rain Saturday afternoon through Saturday night into Sunday morning. Uh, could be looking at 20 to 30 millimeters of rain over parts of the Red River Valley in southeast Manitoba. Not the best timing for Thanksgiving plans, but uh, we certainly can use that uh, that moisture to recharge uh, soil moisture levels. Yeah, so uh, let's hope for some moisture. We'll, we'll take it. I think we've been uh, spoiled. I think it would be very selfish of all of us to uh, to poo-poo and to, to be uh, upset about any sort of rain or precipitation this weekend, Rob. How about, you know, I was asking this yesterday, uh, just amongst the three of us, just wondering, like, how close... Like we've seen these high 20s and low 30s across southern Manitoba over the last several days, but I know they had snow in northeastern British Columbia a couple of days ago. There was and has right. been snow off and on in the forecast for Thanksgiving money, Monday in Calgary, which means at the higher elevations, they're likely to get it. How close are we that that, that in terms of geography that this this rain that we're expected to get this weekend could be snow like we saw two years ago. How far away are we from that in terms of distance? Well, yeah, well, uh, for this weekend, we're still going to be on the warm side of uh, weather systems, so it'll be all rain for southern Manitoba. Our temperatures will still be in the uh, mid-teens, and uh, so a precipitation will be in the form of rain. The cooler air is still over uh, western Canada, and it's going to remain there. While our warmth that we've been experiencing for the first week of October is going to be shifting over Ontario and eastern Canada uh, for next week, that's going to set up uh, basically a boundary across the prairies uh, next week, and that we could see more storms, uh, storming weather and wet weather uh, tracking up that storm track uh, next week. Um, particularly later in the week, we could see a significant uh, storm system as well. So that's kind of be the pattern uh, setting up for next week with warm, warm uh, weather to the east and cooler air to the west, but uh, no real threat of snow for this holiday weekend anyways in southern Manitoba. Well, that's good to hear. Although, you know, Rob, as much as we like to talk about how great the weather is, you have to wonder, and and I know some worry I've seen on Twitter and other social media accounts this week that, yeah, it's great to be in October still wearing our flip-flops, but what does this say about the overall warming trend that we're seeing around the world? And what do we read into the fact that this fall is unusually warm? The long-term trend that could indicate to climate change and, and the rest? Uh, well, I think what climate change is doing is uh, just making our, our our average weather just a little bit warmer. So we're getting later falls, uh, maybe later starts to winter. Uh, we still get the cold weather, um, and we still get severe cold and um, strong storms and heavy snow. Uh, but it's just tending to give us warmer winters, later starts to winter, um, and uh, more extremes as well. Like we've seen how dry we've been this year. So even though we've had dry years before, now we're getting more severe droughts. Uh, conversely, if there's heavy, uh, heavy precipitation, sometimes those events are leading to even more significant 
uh, rainfalls or snowfalls. So I think what um, climate change is doing is basically uh, turbocharging the weather that we have and making extremes more extreme. Robert Paula, retired meteorologist with Environment Canada and a must-follow on Twitter under Rob's Obs. Thank you so much for joining us, Rob. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Good, good talking to you. I got a question for you. How'd you like to have Thanksgiving dinner outdoors on an awesome patio while enjoying some delicious local beer, all while supporting two great community organizations? Uh, Yes, please. Uh, The Beer Can is hosting a pay-what-you-can Thanksgiving dinner this Saturday with proceeds going to West Central Women's Resource Center and Resource Assistance for Youth. You may know that organization, Loren, as Ray. So we're joined now by Brad Chude, who's the co-owner of the Beer Can. Hi, Brad. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. And we want to say good morning to Lori English, Executive Director at WCWRC. Good morning, Lori. Good morning. So we want to get in, of course, to this fabulous dinner, Brad, that you're doing. But first, Lori, we have to ask a question about just your organization. For those who might not be familiar, can you just share a bit about what you do and what your organization is all about? Sure. Yeah, actually, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. And oh, congratulations. And we, thank you. And we're, at, we're focused on serving women who are on the lower end of the income spectrum. And we work with folks who are housing insecure, who are in landlord-tenant conflict, uh, who are experiencing gender-based violence, and women who are just looking for opportunities to rebuild their lives and change the, the path that they have in front of them. So whether that's Um, gaining some work experience or learning how to apply for a job. Uh, We have programs that happen in seven different program areas. And uh, pre-pandemic, we saw about 100 women a day or about 25,000 visits a year. Uh, Lori, your organization is absolutely wonderful. And this I'm just sharing this because I feel a connection to you. When my mom passed away uh, almost 20 years ago now, that is where we took uh, all of her all of her clothing that we saw, thought could be uh, used by others in the community, and we know you did wonderful work with it. So, so thank you for being a part of my mom's legacy. It's uh, important that I, I acknowledge that this morning. So once again, thank you, Lori. Well, thank you for the support as well. Of course. Now, Brad, uh, how did this partnership come about with these organizations? I'm on the website right now. It's called jbjsoulkitchen.org. John Bon Jovi has a restaurant, two of them, in fact. If you go on the menu, there are no prices because it's a pay-what-you-can restaurant. So talk about that, that whole concept and, and, and this par- partnership you've created. Yeah, that, that's all true. I remember, it was I don't know, many years ago now, I saw an interview with John Bon Jovi when that restaurant opened, and I thought it was just a really fascinating concept to, to provide a space for folks who maybe don't have the opportunity to go to a restaurant or, or who do maybe have some anxiety when they look at prices and that he could run this business in a way that doesn't have explicit prices and people could just pay what they think was fair or what they could afford to pay and that the business could be, you know, could sustain itself. And I always thought that was a really fascinating way to sort of tackle um, sort of food insecurities and food or, or sort of, you know, wealth inequality um, and sort of put it in the back of my mind and thought if I ever had an opportunity to do something like that, I think I'd like to have, you know, to see what that would look like and to see if the community would support such an endeavor. Um, 
And so far, it's been an incredibly rewarding experience. We've had over 45 people reach out to volunteer their time and their money to support the event. Um, we've had uh, four different local restaurants um, supported. It was Hudson Bagel, Tallest Poppy, and Stella's, as well as Maple Leaf Foods have stepped up to donate products. Um, and so it's just sort of showing that this maybe is, you know, a, a valid way to, to, to do it. As John Bon Jovi discovered years ago, it's, you know, it comes from the oddest places sometimes. But, um, you know, I, I remember look, thinking, looking up to the man and thinking that was a great idea. And I'm glad I could have a little small part of that success, too. Um, and for the partnership, Lori has been a huge help to us all year. Uh, one of the lessons I learned very repeatedly this year was that uh, when somebody knows more than you, just stay out of their way. Um, and Lori, we came to her very early to help us with some policy writing in terms of inclusivity and and things of that nature. And she was just really great and supportive and helped us to really refine what we wanted to do uh, with the space and and how to treat everybody in the community. We're speaking with Brad Shute. Oh, sorry, Brad, uh, cut you off there. I just wanted to say we're speaking with Brad Shute, co-owner of the Beer Can, and Lori English, who is the executive director of the West Central Women's mm-hmm. Resource Center. And Brad, sorry, I, I jumped in there. If you had a thought you wanted to finish, please proceed. No, I was, I was mostly just saying that, that Lori's, because of all her help, partnering with her on this event just made total sense because she supported us so much that it was only natural for us to want to repay that to, to her and her organization. So, Lori, uh, this dinner that's happening on Saturday between 2 and 8 at the Beer Can, which is right beside the Granite Curling Club at One Granite Way, um, what does something like this mean to your group, knowing that 100% of the proceeds will go to to you and to Ray? Uh, I mean, that's just such an amazing partnership between private business and, and community organizations in terms of the donation itself. But even more so than that, I think the real beauty of what um, what Brad is trying to do with the beer can is it's providing an opportunity for folks who may not otherwise have access to that Thanksgiving meal that many of us look forward to, that time with community or family or friends, um, particularly at this time, you know, when we've, we're just, you know, in our, this is our second Thanksgiving during a pandemic where people are feeling isolated um, and many have lost some of those community connections that they hold. The holidays are always a difficult time for people um, who are low income. And so I think this is an opportunity for them to come together in community to make sure that they have access to a great meal, to feel like they're part of something bigger. And, and just having that opportunity connect to connect with others is a really great value to the people that we work with every day. We take that for granted, Lori, many of us, right? When we think about the long weekend and we're with our families or we go, you know, yes, we'll have a turkey and we'll do do this and that. And perhaps we don't pause off enough to think about all these, what we consider normal things in our life or take things that we take for granted so many others don't have. Absolutely. And I think the pandemic's been hard not only on individuals, but on organizations as well. And many organizations that have provided food security supports pre-pandemic have not been able to maintain that. And so food insecurity is something that we have seen really skyrocket during these last 18 months. And um, so, you know, efforts like this go a really long way to people who struggle day to day. Brad, before we let you go, uh, since you're here, we got to ask you, is the beer can going to return next year? Yes, we, we hope it is. Um, all, all sort of uh, indications are yes. We're still finalizing some details, but yeah, we'll be back next year.
So if if you return, is it going to be the, the same location? And I ask that because I live across the river in the Evergreen Towers, and I certainly don't mind the noise. In fact, I kind of like it, especially when the live music started up again. It was nice to hear that uh, sort of that sound again. But uh, I, I do know there are a lot of people in those buildings in the, in the neighborhood who aren't happy. So, like, how do you manage that situation where you're trying to present, do something cool and fun, but also, you know, deal with potential complaints from neighbors? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you asking that question and giving me an opportunity to kind of respond to it because it is a very serious uh, issue that we've been dealing with all season. Uh, we want to be good neighbors. Um, we've we've heard from some neighbors that they don't they don't enjoy the live music. It's too loud and disturbing to them. We've also heard from neighbors that they really enjoy it. That they sit over on their balcony and they enjoy the free show. Uh, and so we're trying to kind of walk that line between um, trying to make everybody happy. Uh, we haven't got there yet. Um, we're, we're working with um, city council and uh, the city administration to help us kind of find that sweet spot. Um, I think we, we haven't quite got there. We're, our goal is to find the sweet spot. So if anybody in the community wants to help us with that, if they have any stories they want to share or, or any feedback or thoughts, I, I would encourage them to reach out to our, our website, um, uh, our email through our website and I, I'd love to hear from them because we do want to be great neighbors. We want to provide a great space for local musicians to play, but we, we can't do that at the cost of people's, um, you know, you know, enjoyment of living in their own homes. So we, we have to find that sweet spot. We have it yet and we're working on, on doing so. Well, Brad shoot. Thank you very much for uh, responding to that. And thanks for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Brad Shute is the co-owner of The Beer Can and Lori, English Executive Director at the, the West Central Women's Resource Centre. Thank you for joining us, too. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. So once again, 2 o'clock to 8 o'clock, the pay uh, what you can Thanksgiving dinner at The Beer Can, which is at One Granite Way. And they're also... Um, they're also going to be accepting seasonally appropriate clothing donations on behalf of One Just City's Layers of Love program. Fantastic. Yeah, what a great initiative. Great way to enjoy, provide Thanksgiving dinner for those who might not necessarily be able to have it. And it's in a, as we mentioned, it's a wonderful spot. Loren, have you been there yet? No, I was just thinking as you were talking how I need to get there and, and how wonderful it is we're talking to them today about this initiative, given that we were talking about the passing of Kai Matson, such a wonderful Winnipegger working on the Christmas cheer board, dedicating his whole life to helping others. And here you have this partnership between private and, and uh, charitable groups working together. Like, it's just, you know, keep on giving, man. Mackling McGarry McNabb, more Manitobans now eligible to get a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Global's Kevin Hirschfield does more. Those on the front lines and those who've received only viral vector vaccines like Oxford AstraZeneca can roll up their sleeves for a third time. Around 6,800 Manitobans who received those viral vector vaccines would be eligible now to get an mRNA dose such as Pfizer or Moderna. Dr. Joss Reimer says data suggests the immunity of those who got a full course of AstraZeneca wanes faster than an mRNA vaccine. The province is also recommending a third dose for all healthcare workers who have direct contact with patients, including volunteers and First Nations knowledge keepers and traditional healers. When we are facing a fourth wave, and we do know that every healthcare worker is critical to being able to provide services to Manitobans. We want to offer this booster 
to use every tool in the toolbox to support the healthcare system. Booster shots are voluntary for frontline healthcare workers. They'll still be considered fully vaccinated. She also anticipates most people will eventually be eligible for a booster as well. I think it's likely uh, that at some point we will offer third doses more broadly. Um, and uh, I, if I were to guess, uh, I think it would be before the end of the calendar year. And for those Manitobans who will be able to roll up their sleeve for a third time, they should wait at least six months since their second dose. Joss Reimer, medical lead of Manitoba's vaccination effort, outlining the changes that came from a memo to medical professionals and said the third dose should be given at least six months after the second. Dr. Reimer also visited with the news yesterday afternoon. Well, the announcement today was to uh, recommend booster shots for people who have had only AstraZeneca or Janssen or for frontline healthcare workers. And so that's the only groups uh, that we're newly announcing right now. And it's difficult to predict the future, but certainly the way the virus is continuing to circulate, it's looking more and more likely that we might need things like an annual booster like we do for influenza for COVID as well. Uh, so we are trying to prepare and make sure that our systems are ready in case we do have to recommend for uh, a booster shot for everybody who's received doses of COVID. Are the breakthrough infections telling you anything that would lead to that decision sooner rather than later? You know, what we're seeing right now is, is similar to what other jurisdictions are seeing, where the, the breakthrough infections are mostly mild. And uh, as we look at hospitalizations, there's very few of them that are occurring in people who are fully vaccinated. And in the ICU, there's almost no one who's fully vaccinated and ended up in the ICU because of a COVID infection. Rewat Dianandan, University of Ottawa epidemiologist and regular contributor here on 680 CGOB, outlined his view on who else should get that third shot or not get it. And uh, based on the music in the background, we won't be able to play that right now. But uh, you're on that list of people, Brett, that can get a third shot. That's right. I'm an Astro Boy. I'm double AstraZeneca. So when I saw this news yesterday, I was excited. So I will be getting it. If you've got to wait six months, that puts me at the end of November. So I will happily get a third shot, whether it's Pfizer. I'm hoping it's Pfizer just so I can say astrophized like Loren. But because uh, Moderna's end is, doesn't quite have the same ring oh, to it. Oh, come on. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We have Boo at the Zoo passes to give away at Assiniboine Park. We have bomber tickets to give away for tomorrow night's game against Edmonton. And this morning we've been asking you to tell us about somebody who inspires you, someone who has had a big impact on your life. This conversation was inspired by the sad news we learned yesterday that the former executive director of the Winnipeg Christmas Cheer Board, Kai Madsen, has died. And uh, we have, a, we're going to give Val the boo at the zoo passes. And, and GMAC, I know that this text kind of hit home for you. Sure did. Uh, the person who inspired me and who had a profound effect on my life was one of my teachers. Because I went to a small school, she actually taught me in grades one, four, and five. She had a profound effect on my life. 
When I was young, I actually had my parents help me set up a classroom in our basement, complete with desks, one, ones with the, the school was selling because they were getting new ones. So I had books, uh, ones my teacher gave me because they were buying new ones. And students, oh yes, Loren, I'm sure you played uh, school a, day, a time or two, dolls, teddy bears, and any mailman, milkman, or paperboy who dared to get into a conversation with me. Exaggerating to make a point, yes, but you get it. Because of the love shown to me by that teacher, I knew what I wanted to do and be in life. I wanted to become a teacher, and I did. And it was, um, boy, I was enjoying my career when I suffered a brain aneurysm. It was the most difficult time of my life. I had to relearn everything, printing, writing, cooking, just being me again. I had to learn how to be and teach in a classroom again. And Val and I had exchanged a couple of messages and, and she was emphatic that it made her a better teacher in the end. Talk about a positive attitude on life and a, and a view that is incomparable. Thank you, Val. Thank you indeed. That was That's wonderful. And it's great to hear that somebody had such a profound imp- impact on your life. Uh, Colin is getting the bomber tickets. And Loren, what did Colin tell us? Colin said, I had a gym teacher in high school named Mr. Nixon that basically saved my life. I had an extremely rough patch in grade 9 and 10 and was in a bit bit of a bad place. I had no interest in playing any sports, even though I was athletic. Mr. Nixon would take the time to find me in school and check in every day for a year. He then started calling my mom every day to convince her to get me to join the football team, not only for my athletic ability, but more for the camaraderie of the guys. Two championships later and a ton of long-term friends. I can't thank him enough for being that annoying, nagging teacher that wouldn't stop until I was good. So Colin, thank you for that and thank you to Mr. Nixon who he says saved his life. It is 921 on 680 CJOB with Mackling, McGarry and McNabb coming up after Global News at 930 we're talking to a Winnipeg author who has written a book called How to Examine a Wolverine Tales from the Accidental Veterinarian. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. How's this for a book title? How to Examine a Wolverine. More tales from the accidental veterinarian. <laughs> I'm sorry. This this uh, title is just so funny. The book was released just over a week ago. Winnipeg author and veterinarian Dr. Philip Schott joins us now. Dr. Schott, good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. Yourself? Well, really well. Great to uh, connect with you again. We first met you back in April of 2019, but we've been racking our brains. We've been going back and forth. Have you ever, in fact, examined a wolverine? You bet. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's, it's in there. It's one of the stories in there. The story is entitled Huey. He was named after the famous movie actor who portrays a very unrealistic Wolverine in, um, in a Hollywood film. But no, this is a real Wolverine. In what scenario <laughs> is a Wolverine coming onto your veterinarian table? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, the zoo brought me a, brought me a Wolverine. I um, have um, some some of the more advanced ultrasound equipment in the city or had at the time and um, some extra training in ultrasound. In the meantime, the zoo has their own equipment and so forth. But at the time, they, um, they would bring me interesting creatures from time to time to ultrasound for them. 
So, like, what other kind of unusual animals have you examined? I mean, we think, you know, primarily, I imagine it's primarily cats and dogs, but there are all kinds of animals out there that people yeah, have. Yeah, for sure. No, it's like 90% cats and dogs, and then the, you know, the hamsters and gerbils and so on. But as far as unusual creatures, well, there was the Burmese python um, that was, oh, how big was this thing? Like six meters long? Oh, I don't know how much it weighed because it wouldn't fit on the scale, but it took four of us to carry it in. <laughs> so that was also for an ultrasound <laughs> to try and, find, try and find a suspected mass. Um, those things are powerful. They are really, really powerful. Fortunately, they move pretty slowly too. But um, yeah. <laughs> Holy man. How long did you say it was, Dr. Shaw? Uh, six meters, like 18 feet. Oh, my God. No big deal. I, I thought maybe you were just <laughs> speaking incorrectly there. I was like, no, no, no. Uh, no does, does he mean uh, 18 feet He's long? The largest patient I've ever seen. Yeah, easily. That is unbelievable. <laughs> now, on the small side, uh, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan or not, but uh, you might recall uh-huh. if you are the uh, episode where George runs over the squirrel and they have to. Uh, right. You know, the veterinarian says, well, you know, we have to uh, send away for some very tiny instruments and and all (laughs) these different things. How tiny are the instruments that you're working with if you're working on these smaller mammals and rodents and that that sort of thing? Are they are they smaller than than the average instrument? Yeah, yeah. We got teensy tiny instruments, little tiny needles and small scalpels and so forth for I mean, you can go as small as a mouse and mice weigh, you know. 50 grams, something like that. They're really small. Um, And you can, um, like even little kittens when they come in. The smallest kittens, like newborn kittens, those are pretty tiny creatures. So yeah, you have maybe not as tiny as you're picturing the instruments, but they're they're small enough that we can get the job done. You just need a steady hand and good light and um, good eyesight. I'm going to ask this question again. In what scenario is a (laughs) mouse coming to to you, someone has brought you a mouse before. Yeah, yeah, this... yeah. We, we get mice from time to time. They're pets. Um, you know, I don't mm. honestly. I hope I don't offend any of your listeners. I don't recommend mice as pets. They're kind of bitey. I, I kind think of that's dirty. great advice. Keep going on that front. <laughs> However, rats are excellent pets. Rats you are know. clean and smart, and <laughs> you don't agree. No, but they are excellent pets. Mice, are, mice are problematic as pets, but yeah, people do keep them as pets. Um, it's ironic. We went, had a mouse come in, and um, at the same time, we were trying to trap a mouse that had gotten in the clinic, like a, <laughs> you know, a wild mouse that had gone to the clinic. And every night, you know, we got come in the morning, and a bag of pet food would be you know, gnawed into, and so it was a problem. So, on the one hand, I'm trying to save a mouse's life, and on the other hand, like a pet mouse. On the other hand. I'm, I can concur on the rat, the rat thing, Loren. I had, my buddy Chris, uh, when we were in like grade six, he had a pet rat. It was white, and it was cool. It, yeah, they, yeah, they, cool. We'd let you know the thing would like crawl up our leg, and its tiny little claws uh, would dig in, but not enough to hurt. So yeah, that's right. I, I completely forgot about that. Thank you, uh, doctor. <laughs> that good memories uh, playing with that rat. But um, you talked about you know trying to trap the mouse. What happens if one of your patience tries to make a run for it oh yeah yeah no it it happens i mean worst cases if it's outside um we did have and there's a story in the book of uh, we had a pekinese uh, quite a few years ago maybe 20 years ago on a walk a volunteer was walking the dog the leash wasn't on tight enough and the dog bolted and we're on portage avenue you can only imagine dog was hit dog survived but uh, that was one of the most stressful days of my life I and mean, i think that's right around then when my hair started going gray. Um, 
So that that's worst case. Within the clinic, yeah, you know, we've had cats. We've got those floating ceilings like people have in their basements, you know, the ceiling tiles. We've had cats go up through the ceiling tiles and had to be kind of encouraged to come down from there. And Lord forbid a bird gets loose. Um, <laughs> you got to be super, super careful. Keep all the doors closed, etc. If you're handling a bird that still is, is able to fly. Fantastic. Hey, uh, Dr. Shot, we did want to ask you about a couple of other things. Uh, yeah. CBD oil. Yeah. I'm just going to throw that out out there. Sure. Is this yeah, something yeah, yeah. So, something um, my uh, dog needs to calm down or something I need to calm down? <laughs> yeah, you can you can use it, um, you know, on your veterinarian's advice for anxiety, for nausea, for pain, and for epilepsy. In each case, it's generally considered adjunctive, like something you add on. It's not, not as standalone all that effective, except for mild cases, but as an add-on um, to something else, um, like a pharmaceutical, can be helpful. Very, very careful, though. It's the Wild West when it comes to CBD oil. There's a lot of impure product out there. Dogs have no tolerance for THC. Humans have a little bit, the stuff that makes you stoned. But I've seen stoned dogs come in because they're taking a human-grade CBD that's got a little THC contamination. So talk to your vet about um, where to source um, pure veterinary grade, which is better than human grade um, CBD oil, and in which instances to use it. So I don't know, I, Dr. Shot. I became a dog owner this year, or our family did. Oh, yeah. He's, he's... As did many people. <laughs> yes. So we got a chocolate lab. He's about nine, ten months old now, yeah. and I was shocked about you know just how unaware I was of all the products that are available out there, oh, including yeah. food. You know, you go into yeah. the, <laughs> you go in, and I'm like, sorry, this is this is ins- this is crazy. There's so many things it's that I could choose from. Yes. And so one of the things that you also get asked about, and you know, if you're very conscious about what your pet is eating you might be thinking just stick to this kind of food don't give meats i've heard people talk about vegan diets for their pets what about raw diets what's the advice there yeah so raw is one of those things that came out as kind of a panacea people swear by it saying it's done all these wonderful things for their pet they can be decent quality diets your pet will probably love it but problem is that dogs are um, highly tolerant of salmonella and e coli uh, raw meat course is potentially contaminated with those things chicken with salmonella beef with e coli it passes through them doesn't cause them any harm but it's in their poop and this is going to be gross i hope you people are eating breakfast still but dogs lick their bums and they lick you or they lick themselves so there's a definite association between human gastrointestinal distress if i can put it that way and pets being fed raw diets um there's also an association between resistant E. coli strains in dogs' urinary tract infections and being fed raw diet because a lot of this beef has been given antibiotics when it was still a cow, etc. So there are issues that may not be so obvious and so clear, and the benefits, they're not, they're not that many benefits to it. Um, I mean, our species is spread all over the planet, in part because we cooked food. It makes, uh, it makes um, nutrients more bioavailable, right? So cooking is, uh, is kind of like pre-digestion in a way. So. so what about human food overall? I've got two, uh, two uh, dogs at home, one that's 13 years old and one that's 24 months old. Mm-hmm. We, we don't go out of our way. Well, we don't feed them human food. But, of course, the odd scrap or crumb sort of thing will, will, will fall on the floor. And so we don't mind them being the uh, equivalent of the, uh, of the uh, Roomba from time to time <laughs> and, and cleaning up after our messes. Is that something that we should be extra careful of? And- yeah, Okay. So like the, the party line among veterinarians is don't feed human food. The reality is we all do. I do. Okay. 
all things in moderation, right? Just, <laughs> just you know, keep it down to kind of the bare minimum, try to avoid the really rich things and the spicy things and so forth. There is nothing magic about pet food. I mean, you can cook for your pets. Just don't make it up off the cuff or from some random website. Just get advice on, on getting decent recipes. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there's a place for it, but in, in moderation. And just watch it, especially if your pets are prone to obesity or um, have digestive upsets. Um, what seems like a little bit of human food can add up to a lot, especially if everyone in the family is doing it. Philip, before we let you go, um, just want to quickly ask you about one of the reviews of the book that talks about, quote, all that really matters is that the heart of the pet and its owner is pure. What do you say to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, pets' hearts are pure, um, and most human ones are. This is what you discover as a veterinarian. Most people are good, actually. <laughs> this is an interesting interesting thing that you learn. Um, and, um, and yeah, you got that. Got good people and good animals. It's all going to be okay. Winnipeg author and veterinarian Philip Schott, the new book just released a little over a week ago, How to Examine a Wolverine, More Tales from the Accidental Veterinarian. Mr. Schott, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate the time. No, thank you. Yeah, have a good day. 946 on 680 CJOB with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Oh, and uh, we were talking about apologies yesterday and Trudeau's apology uh, today. I got to apologize to Mr. Schott because we actually booked him for Friday, this past Friday at 935 like weeks ago, and I forgot to put it on the sheet. So he was sitting there waiting for a call that never oh, came. So. No. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. Check your, uh, check your uh, mailbox for a bill, Brett. See, I, we started the show with me saying I'm a stupid <laughs> moron idiot. You're not. Stop it. <laughs> oh, Greg, Greg, you just wanted to make a quick point about the 80-20 rule. Oh, yeah, if you want to learn more about it, it's actually known as the Pareto principle. This is a real thing. The 80-20 rule is an aphorism which asserts that 80% of outcomes or outputs result from 20% of all causes or inputs for any given event. In business, a goal of the 80-20 rule is to identify inputs that are potentially the most productive and make them the priority. So lots of different uh, theories and connections to this axiom, if you like. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.